morning, everybody. Welcome to North County Christ the King. I'm Pastor Kurt, and a special welcome to you guys that are joining us online. You know, as I was listening to Lisa share about Whatcom County Pregnancy Clinic and the numbers, I just found myself thinking, you know, this morning we're talking about uh, a young girl named Mary and the message that the angel brought to her. And I was thinking, you know, she could have been one of those and, and was one of those vulnerable young girls who found herself pregnant. Now, Mary had a very good reason, right? To become pregnant, um, but she could have been one of those girls, and it just made me thankful all over again uh, for WCPC. So let's give them a round of applause this morning. I just think that's worthy, worthy of our applause for the work they're doing. So today is week four of Advent, and that means this is Angels Week. This is the week we celebrate the angel coming and speaking to Joseph and speaking to Mary and kind of giving them some insight about what was going to happen in their life. To radically change their life. So we're going to light the angel candle this morning. And then let's read together this passage of scripture up on the screen. Would you read out loud with me? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Does that surprise you, that Mary was a little confused and disturbed about this? Uh, And I'm sure she got a little more confused as the conversation went on. But this morning, as we jump into our message and we think about the angels and we think about God's prophetic word uh, coming true in that very moment when he approached Joseph and approached Mary, uh, I want you to know that there was probably something else going on in Mary that is talked about in this passage, and that is that following God can be really confusing. Anybody ever noticed that? Now, we think we shouldn't be confused, but boy, let me tell you, we do get confused trying to follow God. Following God can be confusing and it can be disturbing. So I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, for me, following God wakes me up early in the morning. I was awake at 2.30, 3 o'clock. I got up at 3.30 this morning, made some coffee, had my devotions. I always feel better once I get up. But you know, waking up early is because I have things in my mind, I have things in my heart, I have things I'm wondering about. I have things that God is speaking to me as he is to you. And I don't ever have the complete plan. I don't ever know the complete roadmap of what's going on as far as God leading me. You know, and and people don't always understand either. Sometimes you try to lead a certain way and, and it feels sometimes like you can't win. It's like referees in a basketball game, right? Half the crowd's mad at you half the time, and and or all the time. And that's just the way it can be. And so the first thing I want to say is that It takes courage for you. It takes courage for me to follow God, to listen to his voice, to do what he says. And that's where Mary found herself. Now, I've had a lot of confusing and disturbing times in my life. One of them was when I was about 21. I was going to Skagit Valley College and Western at the same time. Talk about confusion, right? And I had to do that to play ball. And I was a junior. I was a declared tech ed major. I was going to teach high school wood shop and mechanical drawing, and I was going to coach basketball. That was my plan. Uh, the guy with the most impact on my life had been my coach, and so I wanted to follow in his footsteps. But that spring, when I was 21, I became less sure that this was really the path for my life, which was very odd. I was confused. I was disturbed. I didn't know what to do with these feelings uh, that were happening in my life because I had been so sure. 
And all I can tell you is that my desires were evolving. I was starting to change. Um, I was more interested in church. I was more interested in worship and leading worship. And so I dropped out of school. I dropped out of school and I went to work for my wife's cousins, Rob and Ron Visser. Many of you guys know them at Price and Visser Millwork in Bellingham. And I learned to make cabinets from blueprint to installation, which is a great craft to have. If you ever fire me, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make cabinets. And a part of me will love that. Just let me tell you. Okay. But at the time, I remember some people questioning my decision, criticizing my decision. And to be honest, I was confused. I didn't know for sure that it was right, but it seemed right. And I couldn't see to where I am today. I couldn't see down the road. You understand, the book hadn't been written yet. I only knew what I knew, and it seemed right. So I did my best. Uh, Given what I knew, I did my best to follow Christ. And that decision led to more decisions. Like eventually, I went to work for a church. I became a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for 12 years. I was a worship leader for a couple different churches. I went back to school, finished my degree, changed to psychology, uh, not mechanical drawing in tech tech but and then i moved to bothell and then i moved to taiwan and then i came home to linden and then i got my masters all of these are decisions that had to be um you know sought after and i had to really listen and i had had to work through the confusion and the disturbance of my life and so do you and so i just want to say to you today don't be surprised that following god can be confusing and can even be disturbing in your life it can cause disturbance in your family Following God, there will be confusion. Not not everybody gets an angel, right? Any of you ever had an angel? No, don't raise your hand. We'll, you know, get you committed. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, not everybody gets an angel. But God may invite you to do things that people don't agree with, that kind of fly in the face of culture. So consider Mary this morning. Consider Mary saying yes to God. Here's what Mary would face. She would face judgment she would face illegitimate pregnancy at that time it was actually punishable by stoning so she faced the very threat of death when she said yes and at the very least joseph could have broke up with her right she could have lost the man who had committed his life to her and joseph joseph had his own confusion didn't he he had his own disturbance to deal with in his life he also defied his culture He defied the Jewish culture by choosing to marry Mary, even though she was defiled. That's what Joseph was left to do. And as I think about this, I think it it seems to be God's normal to invite us into something abnormal. As I live life with Christ, it seems to be the case that God seems to enjoy inviting us into something abnormal, confusing even, maybe disturbing But God is not confused. Here's what we got to get this morning. God is not confused. That's not God's problem. That's our problem. 1 Corinthians 14 says that God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. And I can tell you what God wants us to do. In the midst of our confusion, God wants us to trust him. That's what God wants. If that's all you can remember about what I share with you this morning, remember that. God wants you to trust him. In those times when life seems the most confusing and disturbing. Now I want to clarify something this morning. I want to be sure we all leave this room or leave online understanding this. Let me clarify. It's not confusing when it comes to clear-cut sin. When we know what sin is, it's not confusing. We shouldn't do that, right? Whatever it is, we shouldn't do it if we know it's sin. But here's where it gets a little more difficult. 
And we're in this time right now. It gets more difficult when we have to discern how to live in a culture and honor God when culture imposes values that go against His Word and sometimes even go against our ability to worship Him. When man's authority violates what is honoring to God, what do we do with that? That can be very confusing. Uh, That can cause a lot of just wondering in your life. That can bring great disturbance into your life. That's kind of where we've lived the last seven or eight months. But I want to say to you today that when man's authority violates what is honoring to God, then you have to take the whole the whole counsel of his word. You've got to take his whole word and what he speaks through his word to us. And you have to arrive at the best decision you can. And we all do this a little differently. That's the thing. But we've got to arrive at the best decision you can basing your information on the whole counsel of his word. You can't just take one verse or two verses. You've got to take the whole counsel. First thing I learned at Bible school. You've got to take the whole counsel of, of God's word. Don't just take something out of context, right? So through Scripture, through Scripture, we see men and women, like Joseph and Mary, take a stand against their culture, which they both had to do. They had to both do something that would be found unacceptable and even punishable. And when it violates God's word, his principles, or the worship of him, and today we call it civil disobedience. That's the name for it we have today. Uh, Thanks to Martin Luther King, uh, taking a stand for God and his word by ignoring ungodly authority. We call that civil disobedience. But I want to tell you that Martin Luther King didn't coin that, that practice. The Bible is full, absolutely full. The best stories have to do with people taking a stand. Let me give you a couple. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? Refusing to bow down before the idol, getting thrown into a flaming furnace. And then you have Rahab, who defied her government by choosing to hide the Israeli spies in her house. You have David building a band of brothers in defiance of the king, King Saul. You have the apostles defying authority and refusing to stop preaching about Jesus. And even Jesus. I read a great book over my vacation called Killing Jesus. Really great book. You should read it if you haven't already. Even Jesus would grow up and one day he would defy the religious authorities in his life by doing things like overturning tables in the temple uh, and even defying Rome as he finally admitted he was king. That was a capital crime against Rome. He punishable by death. And so you see even Jesus taking a stand in things that are important. Well, one of my favorites, though, is Daniel. Anybody else love Daniel? I love Daniel. My, Daniel was my second name, so I'm named after Daniel. And I just love Daniel. He's one of my faves. Uh, 500 years before Jesus was born, Daniel was living in captivity in Babylon. And he'd been elevated there by the king of the time named King Darius. And he'd been lifted up, so there were a lot of other government officials who were just jealous of Daniel. They hated Daniel. And they came up with a plan. They began, began to search for some way that they could find fault with Daniel. They said, what can we do to get Daniel in trouble with the king, to get rid of Daniel? And they tried to find a way to get rid of him on how he was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything. Let's take a look at that in Daniel chapter 6. It says they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn him. He was faithful. He was always responsible. He was completely trustworthy. So they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So what did the officials do? 
They made a law banning, anybody know? Prayer. That's right. They made a law banning prayer. This was punishable by death. He'd be thrown into the den of lions. And they knew this about Daniel. They knew that Daniel would not comply. So they knew they had him. They knew he would stand firm with his practice of worship, of praying to his God. And sure enough, Daniel defied the law because it violated his prayer time. It violated his worship of God. In verse 10, it says, When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home. He knelt down, as usual, in his upstairs room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into a den of lions? Yes, the king replied. That decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man, Daniel, I love that. One of the captives from Judah is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. As I was reading this again, I've read this, I don't know how many times throughout my life, but the childhood song came to my mind. Anybody remember Dare to Be a Daniel? I think you should sing it with me this morning, don't you think? If you can remember it. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. I grew up on that song. This idea of standing up for what is right in God's sight and for doing my best to follow Christ, this is ingrained in me from a very, very early age. I've got lines in the sand that say this far, but no further. Anybody else have lines in the sand? Anybody else have lines in your heart, in your soul, that that you believe, based upon the whole counsel of God's word, that this is your line? Now, here's what I want to say to you. You know, Daniel's line was prayer. Daniel would not give up that line. He said, you can't take that line away from me. You can take me away from the line, but you can't take the line away from me. Now, Daniel could have complied. He could have complied. He could have just prayed silently. He could have just drawn no attention to himself. He could have gone ahead and and just kind of kept things on the hush and on the down low. And maybe no one would have known. But what Daniel did was he took a stand for the line in the sand. And what I want to say to you today is is that there's a line for everybody. Now, I don't know what your line is, but I know what my line is. And this is my line. And for Daniel to do that, keep in mind, like Mary had to push through her fear to face possible judgment and and even stoning, for Daniel, he pushed through any disturbing fear that he may have had about what's it going to be like to be launched for lions. Know what I'm saying? That's, That's a disturbing thought. He didn't know God was going to close the mouths of the lions. So what was it like for Daniel to push through the disturbing thoughts of of what's it going to be like to be torn limb from limb in a lion's den? What's it going to be like to watch them eating my arm while I'm still alive? I mean, think about this. This was common practice in that day. But what Daniel did was he placed his trust in God. And he left his windows open. 
And I love that about Daniel. I love that he placed his trust in God and he left his windows open. I love that about him. He ignored the king and his law. He knelt down as usual. Why? Because this unjust law violated something that was, that was more important than the law, and that was Daniel's ability to worship his God and to communicate with his God. And again, you could say he could have done that silently, but Daniel chose to stand up for praying out loud. He didn't go try to change the laws. He didn't go try to petition the king. He knew that this was a law of the Medes and Persians that could not be revoked. And so he simply did what he had always done. He prayed. He prayed. Now it's 2020. 2,500 years after Daniel. Here we are. 2,500 years. Do you see any similarities this morning? Any similarities to you? I do. Uh, We have a mandate, a couple of them actually, that, that keeps people from coming together to worship. And first of all, this violates our guaranteed First Amendment rights. It does. I understand there's a state of emergency. You don't have to educate me. I've been all over this thing. Trust me. For eight months, I've been all over this thing. But this arbitrary mandate says we're allowed 25% of our capacity. That's what we're allowed. Or 200, whichever is smaller. What that means is, and you can say, well, they're still letting you come to church. Well, no, what that means is if you're number 201 and you needed to be in church that morning and you were desperate, maybe you were suicidal, maybe you were depressed, maybe you just needed fellowship. If you were number 201, technically, we would have to turn you away no matter how desperate you are. I have a problem with that. I do. I believe that there's something just as important as our physical body, and that's our soul. And that for some people, there are days when you need your soul breathed into. You need your soul to find some life. You need your soul to gain some strength. And we don't know which one is which. We don't know who you are. And so I have a problem with having to turn away number 201. Consider Overlake Church in Redmond. Overlake, where I've been many times as I worked as a worship pastor down at Eastside, we did a lot of stuff with Overlake. Overlake seats 5,400 people. They get 200. That doesn't seem right to me. And so from the very beginning, this seems very arbitrary. It seems very, very unjust in the way that it's set up. Um, you know, that a church can can only have the same amount of people we can have, even though we only seat 1,000 and they seat 5,400. But that comes from the belief that I hold dear to my heart that assembly is essential to who we are as a church. I am so grateful that we have online capabilities, that we can stream and that we can stay home. That is so good, and I'm so grateful for that. I truly am. I truly mean that from the bottom of my heart. But there are days when you need the body. There are days when you need to come to church. There are days when you say, no, I can't stay home today. I need to be with my brothers and sisters. And on those days, we don't ever want to have to tell you that you're number 201. That's the truth. Hebrews 10 says, let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And let me just give you a little bit of context for this. And if you're feeling like, well, as a church, we shouldn't be engaged in this practice, um, well, then let me just uh, suggest a couple of uh, places around the world that we encourage fully and support financially, and we support with our prayers, and we support with our hearts. And one of those places is China. Now, I lived in Taiwan for two years, so I know the fear of China. 
Do you know that when I worked in Taiwan, they had airline tickets set aside for us so that on any given day when China decided to take Taiwan back over, we could get on the first flight out and get out of Taiwan. That's the fear that they have. So in China, it's considered so essential to the church to have fellowship that millions of Christians assemble in their homes weekly, breaking the law every week. It's against the law to assemble. And they do this under threat of arrest and under threat of beating, and we support them fully. We say, you go for it. You go for it. You should get to meet. You should get to have that fellowship. And by the way, China has the largest church in the world, mostly based on the underground church. The other, the, the above ground church is government run. Did you know that? It's government supported. It's government approved. It's called the three self church. So the communist party knows all about that church, but they hate the underground church. The second country I want to mention is one we're very familiar with because we support them and you hear me talk about them all the time, and that is India. Did you know that in India it's illegal to convert to Christianity? There is a law. It's called the anti-conversion law. It's illegal. Now, this is a baptism that I had the blessing and privilege to attend. Beautiful. Uh, these people come down to a hidden place, and they risk their, um, you know, their lives. They risk getting thrown in prison. They risk getting arrested because they say yes to Jesus. And we celebrate them, and we celebrate their courage. And just last week, one of our pastors in one of the remote villages in India was shot dead just last week, leaving his family of children and a wife in the village he's been reaching out to and sharing Christ with. He was shot. He no longer is alive. This is India. And we celebrate them and we celebrate their courage and we support them and we fund them and we give them rice and we try to keep them alive. Recently, our governor issued a mandate that bans singing. Now, I was personally offended by this. <laughs> I got to tell you. Really? And next it's going to be laughing? I mean, really, anything that, right, comes out of your mouth. So, singing, which, according to the whole counsel of the Word of God, is one of our primary expressions of worship. All through the Word of God, God's people have sang. They have sang going to war. They have sang coming back from war. They have sang in church. They have sang in fellowship. They have sang in the, in the streets. It's, it's a part of our worship experience. And I understand the whys. I get it. I understand the whys behind it. But in my opinion, singing to us is kind of like prayers to Daniel. And so this really became my line in the sand. I'm just being honest with you, church. This became my line in the sand. This became the thought of, okay, if it's singing today, what's it going to be tomorrow? And everybody has their line. <laughs> So you got to go where your line is. i got to go where my line is. This is my line. And you've elected that I lead the church. So you're kind of at the same line I am, unless you decide not to be. And I get that. I totally understand that. Um, but we have a problem. We have a problem. We have a problem because we have competing demands or competing instructions in the Word of God. We have Romans 13 that says, Obey the governing authorities that are placed over you. But then we have the whole counsel of the Word of God that says, you know, really don't let anything impede your worship. And we have Daniel who opened his windows and prayed. You know, and so for me, this has become an issue that over 50 places in Scripture were commanded to sing to the Lord. You know, when Jesus was in the desert and he was being tempted by Satan, 
to bow down and worship him. And Satan said, I'll give you everything if you do this. Jesus reminded Satan, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And in Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to the Lord with grace in your heart. And so what I want to ask you this morning, and really this is, this is why I'm preaching this sermon today. What I want to ask you today, and, and folks online as well, we're all together in this, whether you're here or there, what I'm asking you today is, what is your line in the sand? And it would be a good thing for you to think about that and to say, where is my line that I will not be pushed across? Where is my line that I feel a spiritual mandate from God to hold true in my life? Where, where is the line that says, I can't compromise this? I can't do this. Every one of us needs to have that line in the sand. And I guarantee you, you have one. You may just not know where it is yet. And so I want to encourage you this morning to find out, think about, pray about what your line in the sand is. And I hope, I hope that there's a line so that like when the apostles were told not to preach anymore in Acts chapter 5, they simply said, we must obey God rather than man. And at some point in our life, at some point in our experience, we may get to where China is. We may get to where India is. We don't know. Nothing is guaranteed us. We don't know when that day may come, when it's illegal to do this or that. And so I ask you today, where's your line? So back to Mary and the angels. Let's pick it up as we close today. Verse 30. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and you will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Basically what the angel said is, don't be afraid. You have Jesus. Don't be afraid. You have Jesus. Now I know we wrestle with anxiety and we wrestle with fear. We wrestle with those things and that's human. That's okay. But at the end of the day, and this is number two in your notes, God's answer to confusion and fear is Jesus. That's his answer to confusion and fear. Jesus, interestingly, was God's answer to Mary's fear. And when Mary was confused and disturbed, the angel said, Don't be afraid. You're going to bear the Son of God. Don't be afraid. I give you Jesus. But I want to make sure you understand this. It wasn't that Jesus would save her from her today. Understand that. It wasn't that Jesus would save her from her today. She would watch him suffer and die as a mother the most brutal and gruesome death known to man. So it wasn't that Jesus would save her from today. So the angel's not saying, don't be afraid because Jesus is going to make everything all right. No, it wasn't that at all. It was don't be afraid because he's going to bring salvation to the world and a kingdom that will not end. That's why the angel said to Mary, don't be afraid. Plus, she got to birth and raise the Son of God. Now, how cool is that, right? Any of you moms, would you want to raise the Son of God? Could you ever be right if you raised the Son of God? <laughs> Try spanking the Son of God. You know what I'm saying? But that's got to be pretty cool, right? She got to raise the Son of God. Remarkable. 
So for us today, just like he was to Mary, Jesus is God's answer to our fear. And I want you to know that whatever we face as a church, you know, let's say that the vaccine works, everything goes away. That's awesome. Let's say we have another year of this, two years of this. There's already a new strain in in the UK. I read this morning. It's out. There's a new strain. I want you to know that Jesus is enough for our fear. Now, interestingly, there's over 365 commands in the Bible to not fear. One for every day. There's probably a few more than 365, but at least 365. Why are we not to fear? Because of Jesus. Jesus is who we hang on to no matter what is going on in our life. Make this as practical as you want or make this as worldwide as you want. The answer is Jesus. So I want to leave you with a few thoughts today. And I want to ask you, what are you afraid of? First of all, let's isolate our fear. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of getting sick? I don't want to get sick, but I can't say I'm afraid of getting sick. Are you afraid of death? I don't want to die necessarily. I can't say I'm afraid. I'm afraid of pain. How I die, right? Um, Are you afraid of being judged? I'm probably more afraid of that. Afraid of being criticized, afraid of being rejected, losing friends, being hated. Jesus is the solution to all those fears. So let me just give you four things as I close today. What is it about Jesus that fights our fear? What is it about Jesus that fights the fear that you have? For Mary, it was understanding that this thing was bigger than her. It was understanding that God had this massive plan and it was going to unfold. And this made it worthwhile for her to face her fear with Jesus in her arms. Her life became about Jesus, who he was and what he was going to do. How about us? What does Jesus give us to fight fear with? Here's the first thing. He gives us his love. Nowhere else can you find love like the love of Jesus. He's the only one that loves us perfectly, without flaw, even in our weaknesses and frailties. And John said that when we place our trust in Jesus' love, that he'll be with us as we walk through anything possible. We don't have to fear loss because we have love. Okay, so his love is the first thing. The second thing is his life, eternal life with Christ. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear sickness. We don't have to fear rejection. Because we have eternal life with Christ. When we step out of this life, we step into eternity with Him. We understand that this life is short and temporary. And that's why we're different than the world. That's why we're different than the world. We understand this is just a prequel. This is going to be over so fast, folks. I'll be 60 this year. I cannot believe how fast it's gone. Seriously. I used to be able to dunk. Now I, now I dunk, you know. It's true. And so we understand that this life is short and temporary. It's designed, listen, life is designed to be short and temporary. God made it that way on purpose. I'm not saying underestimate life and don't live to the fullest. No, live to the fullest. But realize that it's meant to be short and eternity is coming, real life in Christ. The third thing is uh, we don't have to fear because our identity and our value is not in ourselves. It's in him. It's in Jesus. We don't have to fear criticism. Does it sting? Of course. We don't have to fear judgment. Does it feel bad? Of course. Anybody like to be rejected? Let me see your hands. Anyone love it? 
Like you get up in the morning and you say, let's see what I can do to get rejected today. I think maybe a few of you actually do do that. (laughs) Why? Why don't we have to fear those things? Because our identity and value is in Christ. We are so valuable. He died for us. This month we celebrate that he came to us, confined himself to this human body after having been glorious and and the expanses of heaven and being with his father, he came to be with us. We are so valuable. And so whenever you start feeling like, you know, the world is on your back or, or they don't understand you or they're rejecting you, remember that's not where your identity is. Your identity is in Jesus. At the end of the day, all that matters is that he loves you and he prepared a place for you. And then the last thing I want to just say, and this is huge, and this was big for Mary, and this has got to be big for us, and that is this. uh, We don't have to fear because of God's sovereign will and plan for your life. Do you know that you'll not get one day less than God planned for you? And you'll not get one day more. So God's sovereign will and his plan for my life is what helps me place my life in his hand. It's what helps me say, God, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm confused and disturbed, but Lord, I'm doing my best to follow. And so I place my life in your hand. I place your church in your hand. And, and I do what I feel is the right thing based upon the counsel of your word. And I know that you have a plan. And I'm excited to see what happens in your plan. Who knows what you're going to do with little old Christ the King and little old Lyndon? Who knows how you're going to use us? And so like Mary, I want to make myself and ourselves available for God to use us any way he wants. And and that's different for us at North County than it is for any other church. Everybody's doing this a little different. God has called us to be us. And for whatever reason he was thinking, he let me lead so here we are, for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, you know, that whole thing. But here's where I want to be at the end of the day. This is it. When I think about, when I think about God and I think about what he wants to do with me, what he wants to do with you, I want to be able to say like Mary did. She said, behold, the Lord's bondservant or the Lord's handmaiden. May it be done to me according to your word. May it be done to me according to your word. May it be done to us, Jesus, according to your word. Because how many of you know there's nothing else really worth living for? And so, Jesus, our prayer today is, Lord, here we are. We're your servants. I don't claim to know it all. I don't claim to have it all right. I don't, you know, I'm confused and disturbed. (laughs) And yet, Lord, do what you want with me. Use my life the way you want to use it. And and all of us, all of us, together as the body of Christ, Lord, use us. Here we are. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord Jesus, today as we just enjoy again the story of Mary and and her meeting with the angel, God, we're we're just so aware of how hard that was. And God, I'm, I'm aware of how grateful I am that she said yes to you. And so, Lord, we want to say yes to you. And we're not saying yes to Pastor Kurt. We're not saying yes to Pastor Kurt and his plan or Pastor Kurt and the the plan of the council. 
But Lord, we're saying yes to you, and, and that has to be right for each one of us. So God, I pray for my precious brothers and sisters that each of us would come to that line in the sand and would be able to say, uh, this is where I draw the line. This is where I give God the honor and glory he deserves. And so, Lord, may it be done to us according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand up together. We're going to close with one last song as we worship the Lord together.